So I don't know if you noticed uh, that this passage, it begins and ends with reference to God's anger. Uh, up until now, we've been working our way through Joshua and we've seen uh, in the conquest that God's anger has been directed against the Canaanites. Uh, he had set his anger on them for 400 years. Now with the conquest, his anger, his wrath was finally being poured out upon a people who had rejected him and sinned against him in many ways. And yet here in this chapter, we see that God's anger is now directed against his own people. Now, you, would, you might have noticed that there are three scenes in this passage. Uh, the first scene is in that, that first bit where uh, there's the failed battle of Ai. And then the second scene is where God confronts his people over the cause of that failure. And then finally, the third scene uh, records the resolution of that problem. But each scene in this chapter, it conveys to us the way God sees the sin of his people. It gives us God's perspective on sin. And uh, that's why the whole chapter is framed with this reference to God's anger. Sin arouses God's anger. And we're going to look at why that is uh, later. Uh, so let's look at this passage <clears throat> under three uh, headings. First, we'll look at the corporate nature of sin. The corporate nature. Then we'll look at the covenant nature of sin. And then finally, we'll look at the consequences of sin. And as we go through these three sections, we need to be open to, to God showing us how he sees our sin and what needs to be done about it. So let's first of all look at the corporate nature of sin. Uh, here we see that sin affects the whole community. Uh, so this is in verses 1 to 9. Uh, here the Israelites, they've just captured Jericho. Remember the walls came tumbling down, the Israelites went in, took the city, easy. Why? Because God did it for them. God fought on their behalf. It was an incredible victory. And so from Jericho, they now set their sights on the next step in the conquest, Ai. And they go out with huge confidence because they've just seen what God can do when he fights for them. You know, he is their mighty warrior. With him fighting for them, they are invincible. And so when the, the, the spies come back after scouting Ai out, um, they actually reduce the army down to a mere 3,000 because they think this is going to be easy. Their confidence is sky high because God is on their side and they know that God had said to them, be strong and courageous because I will fight for you. So they're full of this confidence. And so the 3,000 men go out to attack Ai and it's a disaster. Verse 5, uh, look at verse 5. It says, The men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them away. And with this epic failure, you can see the confidence of the people. It's like, you know, when you tie up a balloon, or you get a balloon, you blow it up, and instead of tying it, you just let it go. That's what happened to their confidence. Uh, it actually says in verse 5, The hearts of the people melted and became as water. And that, that's, the way that's stated is very significant because up until now in the book of Joshua, that's exactly how the Canaanites have been described. 
Remember when the spies went to Jericho and they met Rahab and she says that very statement, our hearts have melted. Uh, when God opened up the Jordan River and the people went across, what happened to the Canaanites? Their hearts melted again with fear. Uh, they became as water. And so now we see that the shoe is on the other foot because uh, now where's God's anger directed? Okay, the hearts of not the Canaanites are melting, the hearts of his own people are melting. And at this point in the story, Joshua didn't know that. Uh, Joshua didn't know um, what was going on. But as readers, we know why. Because we have in verse 1, uh, it says that, that God is against them. It says, The anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Why? Because of sin. There is sin in the camp. And we see that Achan has uh, taken some of the devoted things. God had warned his people, do not touch any of the devoted things in Jericho or you will bring destruction upon the, the whole people. Achan ignored God and so God did exactly what he said he would. He's now against his own people. But of course Joshua didn't know this. Virtually all of the Israelites didn't know this. And so you can imagine how confused they would have been. They'd just seen Jericho fall and now, this little joint named Ai has killed 36 of their men. It must have been so confusing. So Joshua does the, the only thing he can do. He turned to God and poured out his heart to the Lord. Why has this happened, God? Uh, that's in verses 7 to 9. I mean, this disaster at Ai, it looks like a massive setback to the Israelites. Okay, all the confidence is gone. Uh, it looks like the Canaanites are now going to get the upper hand. But for Joshua, the real issue here is how, how will this affect God's fame and honour? What will this do for God's name? What will it do for God's name when his own people are defeated by the Canaanites? That's what Joshua is upset about. Um, but for God, the issue was just a little bit different. See, Joshua's thinking, what's... What's this defeat going to do for God's name? But God is actually thinking, what's it going to do for my name when my own people are living in unrepentant sin? That's the real issue here. See, God's people, they are to reflect Him. Those who identify with the name of God are to take the character of God. That is the way they are to live. They are to be holy as He is holy. And that was not just for some of the Israelites. That wasn't just for the leaders. It wasn't just for the majority. It was for all of them. All of them were to be holy to the Lord. They were to be a holy people, a holy nation. All of them were supposed to be devoted to the Lord for holiness. And yet, it hasn't happened. Do you know the most striking thing about this chapter? I don't know if you noticed this as, we, as Sharif read it, but notice the way God views his people collectively. He views them as an integrated whole. That's why I'm calling this point the corporate nature of sin. Uh, there's a corporate element here. See, let's look at verse 1 again. In verse 1, who took the devoted things? It was Achan. 
Okay? Who, who is God against? He's against the people of Israel. Uh, verse 1 actually says, but the people of Israel broke faith regard, in regard to the devoted things. And so what we see in this chapter, you've got one man's secret sin, and yet the whole people are implicated. Um, verses 10 to, to 15 make that same point. Uh, anyway, um, now to most of us, this, it doesn't really make sense. How come one man sinned? Secret sin, no one knows about it, and yet God blames everyone. How does that work? It doesn't really make sense to us because we come from an individualistic culture. We don't think uh, in terms of how our actions affect the community. Um, we, don't, we don't think primarily in terms of everyone. We think in terms of ourselves, our own rights, our own needs, our own uh, wants and privileges and things. But here we can see that God treats his people primarily as a body. Uh, he treats them as a covenant community. It's the way he primarily sees and interacts with them. Um, the technical term for this is the principle of corporate solidarity. And uh, here we can see how the sin of one is attributed to the whole or the sin of one brings trouble on the whole. And uh, that's, that's what we mean here by the corporate nature of sin. One man's sin, it affects everyone. One man's secret sin, it affects everyone. Now, the New Testament actually speaks of the church in the same way. Uh, there's that powerful illustration that the Apostle Paul gives in 1 Corinthians um, where he compares the church to a lump of dough. And he says that just as a, a small, you know, a little tiny amount of yeast can work through and reshape a whole lump of dough, so a little bit of sin can work through and reshape the whole church. And so what this is saying to us today, when we look at ACAN and the way that's affected the whole community, we realise that your secret sin is never just between you and God. Private sin is never private. It has communal implications. It makes a difference to the whole body. Um, the church is a body. And so if we think, you know, just as a, a physical body, if there is one little tiny part of the, your physical body not working or misbehaving, or playing up, it affects the whole. The whole body can't function. It's the same way when it comes to the church. And so from this passage, we can actually put it like this. How does God regard Frankston Presbyterian Church if one or two or a handful of our members are living in unconfessed sin? How does God look at Frankston Presbyterian Church if some of the members are hanging on to unrepentant sin? Is this body hiding something that could bring it to ruin? Now, we need to be very careful in how we apply this because uh, I have, I've actually witnessed a church who have taken this concept and, and gone in the wrong direction with it, you know, trying to blame some trouble that the church was having on a particular person. 
which is not always wise. Uh, because the only reason that the Israelites could link their trouble at Ai directly to the individual sin of Achan is because God revealed that to them. Now, God doesn't always do that, right? And, and there's a whole lot of other factors going on. I mean, God is far more merciful than we can ever imagine. And in God's mercy, he doesn't, he doesn't always allow the sin of one to bring trouble on the whole like this. He's a merciful God. But he has every right to. And we must never think, we must never presume on God's mercy. We, not, we must never think, because my life is going well, or because my church is going well, that therefore God doesn't mind if I'm indulging in some secret sin without any desire to turn away from it. This passage shows us that the Lord is angry at the sin of his own people. Now, if you do belong to him, if you're one of his own, then that is the anger of a loving father. But even still, that should strike in us the fear of God. It should drive us to immediate confession and repentance. See, if I ask the question again, is Frankston Presbyterian Church living faithfully to the Lord? Are we? Or is there sin in the camp? Are we provoking the Lord's anger? That's the first thing we see here. The second thing we see here is it's not only the corporate nature of sin, but the covenant nature of sin. Okay, I'll explain what that means. Uh, we see here the covenant, <clears throat> the covenant nature of sin. God is clearly outraged. He's, <clears throat> he's deeply offended. He's angry with his people because of the sin of one person. And in verses 10 to 15, we see why that is the case. We're told why God is angry with his people. We get, it, we get to see why our sin offends God like it does. And it's explained there <clears throat> where Joshua says, well, after Joshua goes to the Lord and, you know, why is this all happening, God? And God says to Joshua, get up. Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. And so here we can see that God is outraged because commands have been broken. They have taken, they have stolen, they have lied. Hey, they've broken his commands. But the real issue is not just about rules. It's deeper than that. And you can see what the real issue is with this reference to his covenant. They have transgressed my covenant. Uh, this section in verses 10 to 15 is actually bracketed by this reference to transgressing God's covenant. And so that's the, that's the issue here. Uh, this makes the sin in question not just a broken rule, it makes it a broken relationship. Because the covenant, God's covenant, what is God's covenant? That's the terms of his relationship with his people. The terms of the relationship are that God had set his love upon the Israelites. He promised to be faithful to them. They, in return, were to be his people who would love him and be faithful to him. That was the covenant that God had with his people. 
That's why usually when we talk about God's covenant, we, we use the illustration of marriage because marriage is such a, a perfect illustration of the relationship that God has with his people. It's a relationship of commitment, of love. It's a, a covenant relationship, an intimate bond of love and commitment. And so this, this blatant, willful sin within God's covenant people uh, this is actually an attack on the relationship. That's what it means to transgress my covenant. It's an attack on the relationship itself. You know, if we were to use that marriage illustration again, the, it's the equivalent of a married person committing adultery. Because when someone does that, when a married person commits adultery, the, the spouse of someone who does that isn't hurt and deeply upset and offended, not just not upset just because of a broken rule. The reason they're upset is because that broken rule has attacked the very bond that holds them together, this covenant. It's a personal attack. And that's why it's so disgraceful. That's why burning with anger is the right response. Uh, a covenant has been broken. And see, now we see why God takes sin so seriously. This is a personal affront to him. It's not just about rules on the paper. The rules are there because there's a covenant. And that's what's broken in this case. And you can see the way that God's anger toward his people is expressed um, in the second half of verse 12. So the, this, this is right at the centre of the um, whole passage. It's the, probably the most important point in the passage uh, God says at the end of verse 12, I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. So this is what the broken covenant will look like. God will withdraw the blessing of his presence. And the Israelites have just experienced a taste of what that is like in their defeated Ai. Because when they went out to attack Ai, God wasn't with them. They were on their own. And look at how it went. And God is saying this will be a permanent reality unless the sin is dealt with. Do you know you can actually hear the echo of God's words to Joshua in the words of Jesus when he spoke to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. Now Jesus said to that church, you have lost your first love. Okay, it's like the marriage has gone cold. And Jesus says, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Sounds like what God was saying to Joshua. My presence will not go with you anymore. And you think about that. What is a church without God's presence? It's nothing. Without God's presence, we can do nothing. And so we see if if we, Frankston Presbyterian Church, are persisting in sin, not turning from it, continuing to provoke the Lord to anger, we cannot expect God's presence to go with us either. It's the covenant nature of sin. So we've seen the corporate nature of sin. Sin, even if it's private, it hurts the community. The covenant nature, it hurts God. 
And so the third thing we see in this passage is the consequences of sin. That's in verses 16 to 26. The sin must be dealt with, and to do that, it first needs to be exposed. And the way that's done, it's described in verses 16 to 18. Um, Here you've got the people, you know, God brings the whole nation, because the whole nation implicated in this. And then he begins to, the process of exposing the culprit. And uh, first, all of the, the, the tribes are brought forward, and one tribe is chosen. Then all of the clans within that tribe are brought forward, and one clan is chosen. Then all of the households in that clan are brought forward, and one household is chosen. And then all of the people of that household are brought forward, and one individual is chosen. Can you imagine what that would have been like to be Achan? as God was slowly closing in on him. Can you imagine the, the, the anxiety as he had nowhere to hide? God was closing in. That's scary. Imagine if God did that to us tonight. Imagine if he singled out individuals to expose. It's scary. But do you know, there's a sense in which God is doing that tonight. He's doing that through his word. That's what he does. By his spirit, using his word, he slowly closes in on us. If there's things that need to be addressed in our lives, God will reveal that by his spirit. And if he's doing that to you tonight, don't harden your heart. You need to respond. You need to deal with whatever it is God is revealing to you. Well, here Achan is, he's exposed publicly exposed and in verse 19 Joshua says to Achan my son give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done do not hide it from me and Achan answered Joshua truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel and this is what I did when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Now, what's interesting about the way Achan um, explains his actions is that he uses um, words that, that, um, if, if you're familiar with Genesis 3, it instantly stands out because he says, I saw... I coveted, I took, and I hid. That, that's exactly the way that Eve is described when she took the forbidden fruit. I saw, I coveted, I took, and then she and Adam hid. And so it shouldn't surprise us that this is actually the way we often fall into sin ourselves. I saw, I coveted, I took, and I hid. And that last one, the hiding... That's why we get stuck in sin, when we try to hide it. But look, hidden sin, it's like a ticking time bomb. See, we, we might be able to think, I can hide this from, we can hide it from one another, but we can't hide it from God. And in the end, that's what really matters. Well, now that Achan has been exposed, it's time for this to be put right. This has to be made right. Sin must be punished. 
And so Achan and all he possesses is gathered up. And did you notice, not only Achan and the stuff that he took, but even his own family, they're all gathered up and they're all taken out to the valley of Achor. Achor means trouble. And we read in verse 25, and Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remain to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Now, that, it sounds very severe, doesn't it? Achan took a few things and he stoned to death along with his family. And we might hear that and think that it sounds over the top. It sounds too severe. I mean, what, why did his family have to suffer for his sin? It's something that many struggle with, but uh, there, there are answers. We're not actually told in the passage, so uh, we're just, there's two possibilities for why his family were, were punished along with Achan. One is uh, highly likely they were in on it. Okay, can you imagine that day when Achan found that stuff and ran off to his tent and dug that hole? You can imagine the kids saying, Dad, what you doing? And this cloak from Shinar, what was that for? Maybe it was for Mrs. Aiken. Maybe she thought, oh, this is wonderful. Maybe they were in on it. It's highly likely. It's probably why they were punished along with Aiken. Or this could just be another example of this corporate solidarity principle that we saw earlier. That God deals with the covenant community. And a family is a micro covenant community within the bigger one. And so here we see this, this same principle of the sin of one member affecting the whole. And uh, do you know, there's actually the reverse of that in the last chapter with Rahab, Rahab's faith. The whole family are saved. But let's now think about this actual punishment. Stoned to death. Is that too severe? Does the punishment meet the crime? And from God's perspective, absolutely. <clears throat> Achan deliberately went against God's clear word. God warned them very clearly, do not touch the devoted things. They're devoted to destruction. If you align yourself with those, then that's what will happen to you as well. And so here we see Achan deliberately, he went against God's word. He deliberately... Uh, went against the covenant. He broke God's covenant. And so now we see the holiness and justice of God coming against sin. God must punish sin. And God's anger, which was burning against Achan here, that anger could only be satisfied with the punishment of death. And so whether we like it or not, that's just the way it is. The holiness of God against sin. Do you know God did this again at another key moment in salvation history with Ananias and Sapphira? Remember in Acts 5, um, what did they do? They told a lie and God struck them dead. And we're shocked. 
but God never overreacts when it comes to punishing sin. We always underreact. You know, we look at that and think, no, no, we, I mean, you know, with our own sin, we underreact because we don't think it's that serious. We don't think it really matters. But if we could see it from the perspective of the holiness of God, we would never be shocked at God putting people to death for sin. That's what the wages of sin are. Now today, um, we don't have the death penalty for sin within the covenant community. Okay? We don't take members who are, uh, you know, that's not how church discipline ends up anymore. Um, however, that doesn't mean there's no severe penalty for unrepentant sin. Uh, Jesus actually says in Matthew 5.29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. That's the punishment for sin, thrown into hell. And so that Valley of Achor, you know, with this pile of stones, that stood as a reminder. That reminder was the trouble that we bring upon ourselves and upon Christ's church if we hang on to hidden sin. Those rocks in that valley. A stark reminder. So let's just finish with a word of warning and a word of hope. Okay, this is a heavy passage, but there is a word of warning that we need to reiterate tonight, and that is, if you are here tonight, and like Achan, hanging on to some sin and have no desire to turn from it. Now, despite this message from God's word, you're still thinking, it's okay for me. And you don't want to turn from it. Then from this passage, there's only one thing, it's warning. The warning is that what happened to Achan is exactly what will happen to you on the day of judgment when God exposes everyone's sin and brings everyone who has rejected him to punishment. That's the warning here. It's calling you to repent. But there's also a word of hope here. There's a word of hope, and it goes like this. What if you have been like Achan? What if there have been times where you have disobeyed God, and you have confessed that sin, and yet there's still that feeling of fear and dread? What happens if... If I end up like that, what happens if on Judgment Day and God's singling people out, but I'm singled out and judged? You know, there's that fear still there. What hope is for you then? Well, in one sense, we all deserve to end up in the Valley of Achor because we've all sinned. But there is a word of hope. God has done something about it. And it's something that the prophet Hosea looked forward to. See, there's only one other place in the Bible where we hear about the Valley of Achor, and it's in the prophet Hosea, chapter 2, verse 15. And Hosea is addressing a, a people who have broken God's covenant, uh, and God addresses them, and he points out what the problem is. But then he says these words, he says to the people, I will make the Valley of Achor into a door of hope. I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. So what was Hosea talking about there? He was talking about someone to come, someone who would go into the valley of Achor and do something there 
which would turn that valley into a door of hope. He would open a door of hope in the Valley of Achor. So what is all of that about? Let's look at Joshua 7 one more time. Think about this, the way Joshua 7 ends. You've got one man of the tribe of Judah being taken outside of the camp, being put to death in order to turn God's wrath away from his people. Who does that remind you of? (laughs) One man of the tribe of Judah outside the camp, put to death, turns God's wrath away. Reminds us of Jesus, except for one very big difference. Achan was was punished because of his own sin. He deserved to die. Jesus did not deserve to die because he had no sin. He was being punished for our sin. See, Jesus went into the valley of trouble, the valley of Achor. He went to the cross in our place. And because Christ died, God's anger is now turned away. See, the valley of Achor has become a door of hope because of Christ. And because Christ has done that, we now have this promise in God's word. Now, I want you to listen very carefully to this promise. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the promise. Because Christ went into that valley for us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we again are just so uh, in awe of who you are, the Holy One. And we thank you, Father, that again we can see uh, your character so clearly in your word as you reveal uh, who you are and what you desire. Father, we thank you that you are a holy God, that you do uh, absolutely hate sin. And you are a God of justice who puts sin right through punishment. We thank you for that, Father, because that is the hope for this world that is fallen. The hope of it being put right, of things being made right again. Uh, But Lord, we also thank you for your mercy because we know that all of us here deserve to go and and to do what happened to, to Achan, to be punished for our sin. But we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he went in our place and was punished and that because he did that, that your wrath is turned away. We thank you, Lord, that when we confess our sin, we know that we have forgiveness in Christ. We know that we can uh, get back up again, that we can recommit ourselves to you and walk in holiness. We thank you, Father, that 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 day of judgment has been turned into a door of hope, that that will be a day when we will rejoice because our sins have been taken away and we can stand before you clothed in the righteousness of Christ, knowing that you fully accept us. We thank you that that we can look forward to that day with great joy. So help us, Lord, in response to all of this, to uh, never take sin lightly, to always see it as uh, abhorrent, uh, that we would turn from it quickly. And Father, we do pray for any who are stuck, uh, that your grace, that your grace would be sufficient for them to to, uh, turn and find that you are all-sufficient. We pray it in Jesus' name.